I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So here's my quick book recommendation for the beginning of this week's songbook episode. When I was writing my chapter on Nana Cherry's Buffalo Stance in my book, The Sound of Being Human, I was desperate to read other women on an artist that I'd loved since I was little. I found some, and I found the work of Arisa Qureshi, a young Scottish writer, and her 2021 book, Flip the Script, How Women Came to Rule Hip Hop, published by 404 Inc., was great. It's a small but detailed book. It's got a gorgeous neon pink and orange cover, and it celebrates British artists from the cookie crew to poetic pilgrimage. I especially enjoyed her exploration of rappers with regional British accents, like the brilliant Lady Leisure, Welsh Music Prize winner Dea and Northern Ireland-based Sarah Santos, a.k.a. Don Chi. Arusa's enthusiasm crackles out of every page and I urge you to buy it. And now a proper welcome. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Jude Rogers, journalist and author of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, published by White Rabbit Books. My guest today is a woman whose book, Shine Bright, a very personal history of black women in pop, I first heard about a few weeks before mine came out last year. And of course, I bought it and devoured it straight away. It began, my love of music is intense. My commitment to it is steadfast. This project is an attempt to find out why. And those feelings and intentions grew stronger when she kept getting asked by colleagues, friends, and at US colleges again and again about why black female artists particularly really mattered to her. That question wasn't hard to answer. My guest had been, as she writes, living this history since I was a latchkey kid listening to Midnight Train to Georgia on the family stereo. The book became Pitchfork's Music Book of the Year 2022. It's out now in paperback in the UK. I read my guest words on Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, Donna Summer, The Dixie Cups, Peaches of Peaches and Herb, Janet, Mariah. These women were celebrated wonderfully. Their stories and achievements given so much depth and texture, reminding us how their stories and achievements so often get silenced or written out. My guest today was also, wait for this list, the first African-American editor of Billboard magazine, editor-in-chief of Vibe, has written for Time, Elle, Cosmopolitan, written three novels, co-founded her own hardcover culture magazine, HRD CVR, and has also hosted three seasons of her own podcast, Black Girl Songbook, which is also streaming on all your favourite services. I need to take a breath after that list. <laughs> my guest today is Danielle Smith. Danielle, how are you? Oh my God, dude, how are you? That was such an amazing intro and I'm learning so much about you too. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, you've had quite a career, you know, and you, that comes across in your book. Um, you know, congratulations on it. I, I love how you start it, you know, in your roots, as you say, singing stylistic songs in daycare as a small child, hearing songs with your family on the car radio about your great aunt and great uncle selling race records, as they were called, mm-hmm. uh, out of their garage in the 1940s. Um, I wanted to ask you how important it was to you to have those early childhood experiences right at the beginning of your book. You know, it was very important to me because I think that I took them for granted. I think that I had spent so much time over the course of my career 
writing about other people. I've interviewed everybody from Gangstar to Janet Jackson to Whitney Houston to Chuck D. It goes on and on. But then I said, what if I just interviewed myself? I always ask <laughs> them about their origin stories or how they got into music. And I said, is it possible that the fact that my aunt and my great aunt and uncle actually had a record store in the Bay Area for decades? Could that have a small bit to do with the fact <laughs> that I like music and the fact that, you know, my mom drove us around for hours and hours blasting soul music from the car radio? Could that have the tiniest bit to do with? So I, once I began to really take a look at my own life and the way that I've looked at others' lives. You also have a prologue about Phyllis Wheatley. Could you tell the songbook listeners about her and why you wanted to include her at the beginning of your book? She's kind of an angel in my life, Phyllis Wheatley. I think I fell in love with her because I had a teacher who would put different displays on the classroom walls like every month. And one month, when maybe I was 9, 10, or 11 years old, Phyllis Wheatley was there. And my teacher, her name was Mrs. Blatt, and I'm still in touch with her. It kind of imagined her in the best of ways, which is as a little girl on this slave ship looking up at the stars, which was very romantic. And then as I grew to learn more about her, and once I found out that Phyllis Wheatley obviously was the first um, published a black poet in the United States of America when it was pre-revolutionary America. It, was, it wasn't even the United States. That she actually left this country and went to London and performed her poems and then came back. That's when I decided she was our first global pop star. Yeah. <laughs> That's when I decided it. It, it, it follows the, the pattern of so many black women pop stars over the course of history, people leaving the United States to go to Europe to tour, to find themselves, to retire, because for some reason it just feels better to them there. And so I, I also know that she used to sing her poems. So I was like, this is our girl. We're going to start with her. And believe me, it was a bit of an argument to get her in there, but I stood my ground. <laughs> oh, I loved it, though. It's such a, you know, it shows how fundamental, as you say, that, that experience is and how that experience, you know, continued for other women um, you know, there's so many great things I read about and learned about in here, you know, um, how the Dixie Cups arranged Chapel of Love. I didn't know that. Um, how they got ripped off, which is a common theme. Um, you give Diana Ross's story the weight it deserves, you know, putting her up there with the greats of the 1960s. And it struck me, you know, she's rarely mentioned like that in general pop histories. You know, Diana Ross, <laughs> it's just insane. <laughs> it's, so, it's so wild. I mean, the Supremes, you know, to some degree, are lifted up as geniuses in, in American and global culture. But to me, not as much as they should be, not near as much as the Beatles, who they were boxing it out with pound for pound at the top of the charts, especially in the mid-60s and early 60s. But the thing that's criminal to me, honestly, is the, the powerhouse solo career that Diana mm. Ross had in the 70s and 80s that people act like just never occurred. They act like I'm coming out never happened. Like Endless Love, which is literally, and this is from Billboard, literally the best-selling duet in the history of, of, of recorded music is Endless Love with Diana Ross and Lionel Richie still right now till this day. And people mm -hmm. act like that never happened. So I needed to get it down on paper. 
you know, obviously part of that is because it's pop music, but obviously it's also because she's a black woman, isn't it? You know, it is. It's, it's <laughs> both. It's both. It's because, and I think it's very much because it's black pop music. Honestly, right. I think that there was such a a disdain for black pop in the eighties um, when when so many black artists, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Diana Ross, Lionel Richie, began to sort of take over the charts and rock. There began to be such a big shift. Um, between like guitar rock and disco and guitar rock and and black pop vocals, there was so much disdain for it that that it, there's a lot of erasure there. It must have been a really thrilling process writing your book, knowing you were changing the narratives or making those attempts. Were you just like punching the air all the way through? <laughs> I was going to say no, not at all. Like it was so, it was so. Um, one, it took me a long time. The book is like five years in the making. Um, I was working full time for the first like three and a half years of it. It was finally when I was able to, you know, with the support of my husband and family, you know, leave the full time job I had at ESPN and work on the job, work on the book uh, full time. But there's a lot of me being mad, a lot of me being surprised, a lot of me actually rushing into the kitchen um, and saying to whoever was there, my niece, my husband, can you believe this particular fact that I just found out? Oh my God, can you? And they're looking at me like, um, we're trying to eat our lunch. So, But <laughs> <laughs> well, I love how you engage with the reader, you know, very sweetly as well. You're in- involving the reader in this process of thinking about these women. You-, you put towards the end of the book, you know, I can already hear questions from fans of the women who are not in big ways in Shine Bright. Sister, where are my faves? Where is your fairness? Where's your taste? <laughs> And I love how you talk about that process of editing. You're already thinking, yeah. oh, you know, I'm leaving some people out. And you say, you know, this is, this is your personal history, obviously. Yes. But, you you know, involving the reader is obviously an important thing to you as well. No, it's very important. I think that, um, you know, fan culture has its, especially in this era, it's, it has its uh, complex and, and problematic sides. Um, but for the most part, I think fan culture is something else. Um, especially when they're women fans, let alone if they're black women fans, uh, or women fans of color. These these women are the women that actually move the charts. Mm. Women women buy music uh, more than men do, even right yeah. now. They stream more music uh, than men. Uh, they make the musical decisions for the household, for the weddings, for the parties, for the proms. <laughs> women are in control of like what we remember. And I feel like to act otherwise is is just not telling the truth. I remember when I was in high school and I first started being really into fan culture. And of course, I'm reading about the Beatles and how the girls screamed and just they were so put down by rock critics, even the Beatles themselves, for having these screaming teenage girls at their concerts. Um, But I remember when I saw those girls chasing the cars down that the Beatles yeah. were in, I was like, those are my sisters. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, those girls understand how yeah. music will make you feel. So I'm always down for the people that are listening, the people that are reading, all of that. Um, I have to ask you too, you've been so successful and senior in your journalism career in America. You know, um, there's lots of women in music journalism in the UK now, but still relatively few in positions of power. You know, right, come on, Danielle, I want you to give us advice on how other women out there can keep themselves sane while getting to these senior levels and getting their voices heard. 
I feel like my advice is uh, is usually unpopular. Oh, go on. <laughs> I got into this business like so many of us get into this business because we love music and we love to write. Um, the idea of listening to a song or an album or going to a concert and then translating that for people that are unable to hear it or weren't able to make the show or who don't maybe have the background in listening to the hundreds of uh, songs that you've listened to to bring to the conversation this is an amazing service and it's so fun to do actually. And if you end up getting paid for it, you already feel like a lot of times that's a home run. But the thing is, if, if we're wanting more power in the situation, we have to be willing to let some of that go. We have to be willing to go to the, to the management meetings. We have to be willing to, learn how to deal with the stress of hiring and firing. We have to learn how to manage five different people um, on the Zoom or in your office, each with a different opinion about what should be covered, listening to all of them, and then making the decision about what should be covered and standing on that when others may disagree, either mm -hmm. within, your, within your team or out in the big world. And these are things that did not come to me naturally. But the thing is, I realized at a certain point that I wanted to stop pitching and I wanted to be the one who was receiving the pitches because mm -hmm. I saw that that's where the power was, especially when I was writing for mainstream publications that didn't have a lot of black writers, that didn't have a lot of women writers that weren't covering a lot of black music. And I would have these great pitches and they were great, objectively, great pitches about relevant things and the answer was just no. And they were like, well, such and such and them didn't like it. And I was like, I need to go be one of the people on the such and such and, and them that makes these decisions. But mm. then I wasn't able to write as much. So, and, and you missed that. So my career has actually been uh, kind of a, a journey of, I write and write for one, two, three years. And then I'm like, oh my God, I can't keep doing this writing thing without having a lot of power. So I'm going to go back and try to get a job editing. Okay. So now I've been editing for three years. Y'all have worn me out with all this stress. Oh my <laughs> God. I'm going back to writing for a little while, or even I'm going to teach for a little while because that's just the journey that works for me. But whenever yeah. I'm doing anything that isn't writing, it's what I miss the absolute most. Mm. I sense that throughout your book. And when you're in the flow of writing about something you're really passionate about, well, I, when I am, it's just the best feeling. Yes. yes. So um, before we talk about today's book, I'm going to ask you the three questions I ask everybody. Okay. Um, so the first music act that you loved. Now, obviously, there are lots of music acts that you loved in your book, but who do you think was the very first one? The first music group that I loved was the Jackson 5. There's no question. There's no competition for that answer. Um, I'm blessed that on my, that's on my eighth birthday, my seventh birthday, my mother took us to see the Jackson five, myself and my sister at the circle star theater in San Carlos, California. I did though, <laughs> jump out, of, jump out of my seat and rush the stage and had to be pulled <laughs> pulled back by security, okay, and, and brought back to my mother. So I've been a down-ass, like, soul and pop R&B fan from my earliest days. 
my first album was ABC from the Jackson Five, also a gift from my mother. Um, Michael Jackson just had the kind of voice uh, that got into your brain, into your heart. And also he was the artist that for me, you know, my mother's heroes were the Motown um, gang and Elvis, which was great. I came up on all that music, but they were older than me. Michael Jackson and then Janet Jackson after him, they were in my generation. Mm. And so I'm looking at Michael Jackson on the cover of albums and the cover of like black fan magazines, like right on and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, but we could be at the same school at the same time. You're me. I'm you. And who was the first music writer that you loved? The first music writer that I loved was Ben Fong Torres. Um, from um, He's famous for having worked at Rolling Stone for many, many years. So many great profiles of so many great rock stars. Um, ben Fong Torres is, though, from the Bay Area. I'm born and raised in Oakland, California. So, and he's also of Filipino descent. I'm uh, part Filipino myself. And so all of these things just made me think, okay, so if someone whose last name is Fong Torres can do this, so then can I. It was so great when I would see his byline in Rolling Stone. I went to a, a great high school and in the high school, um, they used to have the magazines of the past, so to speak, in bound volumes. And so I would see Ben Fong Torres's name come up. And I was like, Fong Torres? And then it wasn't until much later that I realized the history of his name and why it was that. And, you know, his, uh, his, his, his Chinese father changed his name to Torres because Filipinos were more allowed into the United States than Chinese uh, people were at that time. Um, but the idea that he was just on the road with rock stars <laughs> and the way he just described everything. And, oh, my God, I was like, I can do that. And then, of course, Ann Powers, who's currently yeah. head of music at NPR. Um, I've known She's Ann. Great. Isn't she the best? Ann was music editor at San Francisco Weekly. I was a freelancer for San Francisco Weekly, reading her, trying to be her in every way possible. And Anne is the person that when she left, uh, she left her music editor position at SF Weekly for a sabbatical overseas. I think she was going to Japan and she suggested that I go for her job as kind of as an interim music editor. This was the era of Dinosaur Jr., Jane's Addiction, uh, Nirvana. I don't think they would have hired a black woman in that era to be music editor of all music, not just black music. But Anne spoke me up. I got the job as interim music editor and I will never forget. She said before she left, just so you know, it's not interim. I'm never coming back. Rock it out. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> wow. Come on. What kind of like, that's like, she changed my life. And so aside from being like one of the most gifted writers of her generation, and when I say one of the most, I mean, top three, probably, if not one. Um, so she's that. She influenced me so much with just the way she wrote about rock, my God. Um, so personal, so real, so in the moment, um, so smart, so like connecting dots between music and culture. She's that. 
yeah. but then she's also the lady that's like, I'm helping you get this job right now. Like for real, let's go. Oh, I love her even more now. Yeah. And what was the first music book that you loved? The first music book that I loved, you know, I wish I could say it was a book. I think it was just to maybe to change the question a tiny bit. I think it was a movie and I think it was, this is Elvis. I think my mother and her Elvis fandom is insane. She's probably sitting on a zillion dollars worth of Elvis 45s right now. Um, she took us to see this film and I think it was the first, she was always taking us to see stuff, which was helpful. Like I remember going to see the Buddy Holly story and all those things when I was a kid, but the, this is Elvis thing. I think this was the first time that I understood how my mother could be as into Elvis as she was mm. at this time in my life. I wasn't, I didn't know about the complexities of Elvis's legacy with, with black American music. I didn't know about any of that at that time. He was just like the Justin Timberlake of my mom's generation. And, <laughs> and I finally got in and I was like, so there's a thing that you can do where you put like pictures together with voice and little movie clips and smart people talking about the person and and you can tell a story about that person's life and then people can go watch it in a room on the screen and it can cause all this emotion. Mm. I passed that theater now. It was at the Culver Theater in Los Angeles where I saw it. And I passed that uh, theater all the time. Um, there's a great coffee house across the street. <laughs> and I think about that film every time I pass that theater. And again, these are the things that made me say, I feel like I could be a person that does things like that. So it definitely was, I think, that this is Elvis Dot. No Dot, no, yes, no other Elvis Dot compares, by the way. That's one other thing I love about doing this podcast. I leave with a list of things to <laughs> more things to read, more things to enjoy. Um, so now let's talk about today's book, which was your choice. Um, it's about another woman who rarely gets talked about in the same breath as Paul McCartney or Mick oh. Jagger, despite arguably her having had as big an impact on 60s popular music as them. Um, she also had a much more successful solo career than either of them <laughs> and continues to have a massive influence on one of our biggest selling and critically acclaimed pop stars today, obviously. Um, well, who am I with Beyonce? Um, and does has an influence on lots of other people. This book takes an interviews with a lot of her family and friends and tells the story of her early life, early career and marriage in incredibly raw detail, including her horrifically abusive marriage to her first husband and um, another book that became a film. Um, it formed the basis for the 1993 Hollywood film What's Love Got to Do With It? So the book today that you've chosen is I, Tina, My Life Story by Tina Turner with Kurt Loder, published in 1986. There it is. That's your, is that your copy from back in the day? It is. Oh, I it love the, the fact you could see it slightly got a bent <laughs> corner. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an amazing book. I feel like look when I was, doesn't she look great? It's very, um, this book was everywhere. It was a huge bestseller. Massive, massive bestseller in this time. In the last decade, um, I've talked on other episodes of this podcast, there have been lots of books by women 
in the music industry, you know, detailing the tough experiences they've had to overcome. There's been loads out in Britain. But here's one from 1986 about a woman who'd become, on her own terms, a huge solo star. Tell me about the impact it had on you. The impact is massive and eternal. Like, first of all, just seeing it, people should, in 1986, there were not, ma- there were, first of all, in 1986, there was, there were a zillion magazines. Like you could go into a bookstore and there were like, there was like a magazine stand and there was like 8 billion magazines and it was so fascinating. But the thing that was disheartening is that there was rarely like black faces on the covers of these magazines. So when you would go into the bookstore or even at a certain point, this book was such a bestseller that you could go into the grocery store and it was there at the checkout, like by the cashier and people were, because people were buying it like that. It was crazy. But just to see this black woman's face looking so happy and sexy in her fishnet stockings and miniskirt and saying first person, I, Tina, was so amazing. It just... For especially for a young girl who wanted to be a writer, it was just like, oh my God. And then I'd been reading, right, these stories in Rolling Stone, these stories in Time magazine, these stories in Life magazine. But it was so rare that you were getting sort of a first person. It, it felt very first person. It felt very like primary sources. There are long stretches of the book where it's just like random record executive who worked closely with Tina, random you know, stylists that worked closely with Tina, but like long stretches, maybe a whole like three quarters of a page where this person is just talking in the most intimate detail about how she liked maybe, you know, her hair blown dry or what her wigs were like, or, or like all these details that people try to act like matter when they relate to men. Like God knows we know what kind of hairspray, you know, Bob Dylan would use or whatever. Like we can know all that or what kind of pomade little Richard was using. God bless him. (laughs) But if you brought up what kind of wig somebody was wearing or what brand of fishnet she was wearing, then all of a sudden it was frivolous. Well, in Mm -hmm. Itina, it wasn't frivolous. And her just talking about also both the falling in love with her ex-husband Ike Turner and the abuse talking about both. I came from a, a, a bit of a tumultuous household myself. So to see that and then to understand how that came through in her music, like both the pain and the love, I couldn't even get my head around it well, probably for a decade after I read it. But I think it was the beginning of me understanding what people meant when they said, you can hear her life in her voice. You can see how her life experiences inform her music. And so it just meant so much to me. And still does. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. At this point, you know, she is middle-aged, as we call it, you know, yes. and she was an older woman having this massive impact in pop. You know, yes. how, how did that feel, seeing somebody who, you know, she'd already lived a life? Oh, I loved it so much because it was the comeback. It was the comeback, and so many people thought she couldn't do it without Ike. Well, she did it bigger, better, and stronger without Ike. He's maybe not quite a footnote in pop history, but in comparison to his ex-wife, there's no competition. She is iconic for that. Reasons of voice, reasons of dance, reasons of style, reasons of legs. <laughs> yeah, she, she, as you said, it's not just that she's influenced people like Beyonce and so many other singers. It's that she's held up as like this queen. She's, she's just such an example of what one can do when one decides to take one's healing into her own hands Mm -hmm. and to take one's ambition into her own hands. And it just, when she was ruling, like it's one of my first, when I started writing for the New York times, I think it was my first album review was what's love got to do with it or the album that came right after it. The one with, we don't need another hero. Um, And it's like, people were saying, oh, well, Tina Turner's not the same person that she was when she did Proud Mary. Like, she doesn't have the same edge as she had when she was really being a a true rock and roll star. A lot of critics, mostly white male rock critics, were kind of anti the new Tina. And... It was, it was not a wise take. It was a take that, to me, still continues in some ways. Mm. With, with artists like Lizzo, with artists like SZA, um, that in order to be considered authentic, you somehow have to remain the same person that you always were when you were trying to become who you're going to be. Mm. 
it doesn't leave room for growth and healing and grand ambitions. It doesn't, it doesn't leave any room for, for that. And so that's also why I think I loved it. Again, I think I didn't even know how to articulate it back then, but it was like, she's a really big star. Mm. And, and I can see that it bothers people. And I can see that she doesn't let it show that she is hurt by it or that she cares. And almost her popularity is something that is used against her, I guess, yes. by certain critics. Yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, I could feel that even back then. And it was wild to me, too, that this book is written with Kurt Loder. Kurt Loder was the man. He was the voice of MTV. He mm. was the guy that when MTV News mattered, it was Kurt Loder was like the Dan Rather. He was like, you know what I mean? He was that yeah. guy. And I think that was very intentional upon uh, Tina Turner's part to say, I'm going to get the most beloved, the most respected, the most visible white male rock critic to do this book with me. So you guys can deal with that. What are the most powerful parts of the book for you? You know, there's um, you know, accounts of her early days in Nutbush and, you know, there's, you get the sense of her personality very quickly. The most powerful parts of the book for me were one, I think, the images. There's a, you know, back in the day when biographies were biographies, there was always like that middle part of the book where there were photos. And and as I said, there just weren't places in the magazines uh, in the 1980s where you could just see like photos of what Tina Turner's mom looked like or a high school graduation photo of her. Mm. Um, it just, her first love, who wasn't Ike? It was some guy named Harry Taylor. And there he is trying to look cool um, before Instagram was a thing. Um, <laughs> to, to just see like backstage or a dance rehearsal, like these photos, I used to stare at these photos. Like, there was nowhere to go but Soul Train to see this kind of stuff. There just wasn't. And, and as much as I was reading, I was just staring at what she and her people looked like. And obviously there's accounts of the abuse, you know, which um, are tough, you know. Um, and it's always something that's, it's often something women who are writing memoir find quite hard to approach, um, not just because they're worried about legal issues, but because once you talk about abuse in a certain way, you know, it's quite often people frame you as a victim or, you know, whatever. It, you're making yourself vulnerable in some ways to, yes. to that. But she, does, she owns that in a way that is, um, you know, I found really amazing. You know, it's quite weird thinking of it as this is a book that's, how, how you know, it's coming on for 40 years old now. Yeah. Still seems like it's new in so many ways. It really did set the tone. I think it gave a lot of people permission, I think, to to write about the to write about the abuse in detail and not in like a sweeping one sweeping paragraph about, yes, it was awful, which God knows we all deal with these things in the best way that we can. And there's no judgment about choosing to be reticent about the detail. But there's something quite 
revolutionary, especially in the 80s when domestic violence wasn't even discussed like it's discussed today, like at all. Mm. Like it wasn't, it, it, and it's, it was whispered about. It was, it was kept so quiet. And she got in there with the most horrific details, with quotations, with the really bloody details. And I mean, bloody literally, mm. not, in the, not necessarily in the British slang thing of like, but really both <laughs> in the mm. bloody and bloody details, right? Of the situation. <laughs> and, and when the book became a film, first of all, that film is pretty gory along the lines yeah. of domestic violence. It's very much out there. Tina Turner has said that the film doesn't have one tenth of the violence that was actually in the book and the book doesn't have one tenth of the violence that's actually in her life. Um, there was um, a book came out last year by um, P.P. Arnold, who was in the Iquettes and um, it talks about her life, you know, in that world. And mm-hmm. that's what it made me think about, Oh, I've never read a Tina Turner <laughs> book. Um, so it's interesting. We are where we are today with this. Um, I'm, not fam- I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that book. I need to, I need yeah, to know came about out- that book. Came out in the UK last summer, published by um, Nine Eight Books. I will hit you up with the details afterwards. Yeah, but it's um, the story of um, kind of yeah, her life um, uh, and how well she fled abuse and became an Iquette and then had a very different sort of life and this very raw and detailed and fascinating and um, you know as I said, there's been such a wave of. Um, music memoirs by women in the last decade in the UK um, and uh, a lot of them from more contemporary times but um, that was one I got a lot out of I will send you the details <laughs> I want um, them yeah we, this is this is a, what this podcast is all about recommending things to people um, obviously this is a ghost-written memoir you know ghost-written memoirs sometimes get looked down upon as if you know we expect every musician to be able to write a book as well as you know write amazing songs mm-hmm. But um, in terms of, you know, as you said, you've made the point about Kurt Loder's involvement in it and him being the big guy of MTV and how that is a kind of middle finger up to certain audience in some ways. <laughs> um, do you have any other favorite ghostwritten memoirs? Ghostwritten? You see me looking behind me because I have so many of them right here. I mean, Billie Holiday's biography, the one, Lady Sings the Blues. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the feel of being ghostwritten. Ghostwritten is such a weird term too, right? I think it diminishes yeah. both the, the subject and the writer, actually, you know. Um, I just feel like the the Billie Holiday, What's Love Got to Do With It is such a precursor to I, Tina, actually. I think that um, Holiday, as much as she can, goes into, you know, the horrors, frankly, of her life as a Black woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. But at the time of its publication, again, those things were really talked about. But she manages to talk about the drug addiction. She manages to talk about what made her voice her voice. And so I would probably put that one up there. And there are also so many, by the way, Billie Holiday books. And I haven't read one, honestly, that isn't worth the read. Even the ones that aren't that good are worth the read. (laughs) because there's so little about her out there at the end of the day um, that you find little things in each one that then can contribute to like 
the whole of your understanding of, of what she really contributed. And there's probably a good point to come on to the, the last bit of the podcast. Thank you so much for bringing Itina to the podcast. It, I love looking at the range of books we have. We have people who are you know, obscure experimental um, composers. We have massive pop stars. It's fantastic. Now, we finish every podcast with me asking you recommendations for two other books. You've obviously mentioned the Billie Holiday one just now. Are there any others you want to tell me about? You know, I can just look. I, I, I'm looking at, uh, I'm talking to Danielle today on Zoom, obviously, because Danielle's based on the West Coast of the States. And I'm kind of just peering at your bookshelves. <laughs> I mean, to look. I have too many, like the, Peter Goralnik, um, Elvis Presley, a two-part biography is one of my favorites of all time. Um, there's Ann Powers and Evelyn McDonald's Rock She Wrote, which is a collection oh, yeah. of, of essays. And I'm in there, so that's exciting. Um, but it, it's such a great, uh, great book. Uh, when I think about uh, Nicholson's Ella Fitzgerald biography, I think we need another big Ella biography, but that one is, is really, really great. Oh, oh my God. Her name's Barbara. It's a great, great, um, biography of, of Barbara Streisand. I, this, I, this is so fun actually. Um, <laughs> wait, what is this one? Oh my God. Queen. Wait, wait a second. Hold on. The Dinah Washington. I can't like, I can't even get my headphones back in. I'm too excited. <laughs> so everyone, I, Danielle has ju- basically left the computer, has gone over to a bookcase. She's pulled yeah. them all out. Oh my Any God. noise you can hear is the, the, your headphones. Yep, I'm out. so sorry. <laughs> so no, it's good. Excited, it's enthusiasm. It is. But Queen, The Life and Music of Dinah Washington by uh, Nadine Cajoras. And let me tell you something. It's thick. It's amazing. It's, it's just... Look at these. Remember I was talking about how the biographies always have their rear photos in the middle, like every word, as the Washington Post said, essential reading. Like it's, it's amazing. And, and it's, it's just in this line, as, as you've mentioned, and I'm so glad that you're saying it in, in your podcast, I really need to go back and listen to the archives. Um, and of course, listen in the future, because there are so many great books right now coming out about women artists, black women artists, written by black women, written by women of color. Um, just finally, women having a voice in like what music is and the possibilities of what music can be, what music was. Like, it's just really a great time to like, get your read on and, and watch the documentaries and listen to the podcast. No, but seriously, it's so important. We've all been left out of this conversation for so long. And if even if we were in it, if we were in the rooms, we were looking around for like a compadre, a friend, a sister, and there was no one there. So it's wonderful also to just meet you. Oh, thank you. Now, as you say, left out of the conversation, um, although, you know, women of color are often the people who are buying all the records and making the music industry turn. <laughs> yes. yes. I love how a lot of the books you've chosen are, you know, about the backstories of these people, their lives in detail, their ordinary roots, you know, and, you know, how they show, you know, how people have come from all kinds of different places to be, you know, who they are. And um, I think, you know, they're books that often get dismissed because they're not, you know, I made this little, you know, narrow world, only the three people who know enough about it know, and that's why it's cool. <laughs> so, yes, well, yeah, that's I'm, what, I'm all for it. I love, 
I love pop is a, is a thing. I, I'm very specific about it. The name of my book is Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. I yeah. really am fascinated. Um, I'm fascinated by the music of Black women in general, but there's something deeply, deeply interesting to me about the Black women who decide that they're going for the Grand Slam. Yeah. That that's what they want to do or that's what they accept when it comes their way. There's something about ambition and people who have been told that they can't or they shouldn't or it's not theirs to have for them to keep that work ethic, for them to just be so deeply into their talent that they want to share it with large audiences. These are the girls that interest me so, so much. So are you going to be writing more um, in book form? I feel like, you know, you said there's all these biographies to be written. Oh, my God. Like <laughs> commission you here's my, th- here's my thing. In whatever, <laughs> in whatever form, I'm going to keep talking about uh, Black women in pop music, whether it's book form, whether it's podcast form, whether it's documentary form, whether it's feature film form, whether it's just me sitting at the bar, boring somebody to tears <laughs> about one more story about one other girl who's done the best <laughs> and the most. You can count on me always communicating, you know, about these amazing women and also telling the story really of myself. It's also becoming more and more important to me as, as it should, as one gets older. Oh, well, we'll be listening. I, I, we'll be reading. We'll be listening. Um, as I said earlier, um, Danielle's Black Girl Songbook podcast has so many episodes um, that you can dip into. I was very much enjoying the Whitney, the Super Bowl one on a drive the other day. Um, and um, before we go, um, I want to ask if you've got a book song for us as well. And this is a song that is inspired by literature or by a poem or um, by an author. If there's any that come to mind. This is where <laughs> this is where I want to sound really smart and really learned and that I have one. <laughs> but I actually don't. And I was looking through your ar- archives and I was like, nope, that's not my song. Um, nope, that's <laughs> not, not my song. But the only one that comes to mind that I'm even super familiar with. Is paperback writer. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I'm sure I'm not the only person to pick that. And it isn't even my favorite song from them. But if I was choosing a song that called to mind writing and books in a very literal and expressive and memorable way, it would be that one. Well, you are a paperback writer, so you can have oh, it. True. <laughs> I literally wrote a Substack post the other day with the first yes. two lines of the lyrics from the song. So because uh, my paperback's out um, out now as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being my guest today, Danielle. You know, across, you know, the other side of the world. It's been a joy to speak to you. It's been so wonderful to meet you. And thank you so much for having me. It's much appreciated. I feel like we're sisters in spirit and I hope we speak again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, it's been great. It's been great. Thanks again. And um, songbook episodes from season one and season two are up now on all your usual streaming services. Um, I know I say it all the time, but please like and subscribe. It helps get us more known. It gets more people listening. Um, Thanks very much for listening. and I'll see you next week. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production. Presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer Jake Alderson. Editor Dan Jones.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.